Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Hello and welcome to Changing Politics, the podcast that will give you something concrete but achievable that will help make politics and the world better. I'm Gronya Maguire, the comedy world's answer to Marie Lacant. And I'm Marie Lacant, the journalism world's answer to Gronya Maguire. And I feel I ought to say right now, I'm not posh, I'm just French. You say that, but you are sitting on a throne this week. <laughs> okay, well, you know what? What's wrong with a throne? <laughs> it's also it's my weekday throne. It's not even a special occasion's throne. <laughs> Gronya, how have you made the world a better place this week? So this week, I've helped to end discrimination by telling off an estate agent. And I expect you to explain that in the second half of the show. I will, and I'll also say that in Ireland, we call that giving out to somebody. But first, let's look at the week's news. Firstly, hooray! We did it. We finally did it, guys. We've got a Brexit withdrawal agreement, which means it's all over and agreed and done and dusted. And I guess we can talk about other things that aren't Brexit. Right? Right, Marie? Right? (laughs) If only. Oh, God. So um, my favourite thing was Jean-Claude Juncker describing the treaty as the remains of love. And I encourage you not to think about what that might be a euphemism for. Marie, you said last week, this is the deal. But surely, you know, if Boris Johnson mounts a coup or Jeremy Corbyn wins a general election, all 27 countries will chuck it all in the bin and give us everything the UK wants, right? I mean, they've got nothing else to do. If nothing else, they must really miss hanging out with David Davis. <laughs> they miss him. Well, I think silver that's, fox. Yeah, that's the issue. Just, I mean, quickly to start with, like before I actually answer this, I would like to say that I am extremely, extremely disappointed and sad that we are not going to go with war Spain. Like, generally, <laughs> the only thing, the only thing I've enjoyed in the past two and a half years of Brexit has been war with Spain. But like, I feel like, you know, it's kind of the thing about Brexit. Like, everyone's had, like, one thing that just made them break down. Mm-mm-mm. And mine was the Michael Howard column in The Telegraph, I think, last year, two years ago, going, you know, because I think there was a bit of noise around Gibraltar and him just going, well, you know, <laughs> war with Spain it is. And that completely broke me at the time. But like, it literally has become so bad, like, because when it came back a bit last week, 
I became obsessed with it again. And I was in the green room at the BBC, like, on Newsnight um, with with a minister. And, like, literally, I ended up making small talk about war with Spain. <laughs> and then I had to be like, no, no, but hang on. Like, this is not something you can talk about to, like, serious normal people. And I think, yeah, like, his advisor tried to make, like, some awkward joke about it. And Killy looked at me like, who the fuck is that? <laughs> what, they talk- thinking another armada? We're thinking a crusade? I, don't, I mean... All I was saying is that, you know, maybe it doesn't need to be a big war. I'm saying that, you know, about a dozen guns and one submarine. That's it. We don't need to make it a massive war, just a bit of a war with Spain. But anyway, so, you know, not even getting that. The one thing I liked about Brexit, the one thing they've taken away from me. Oh, but uh, yeah, anyway. But yeah, so I think, yeah, to come back to the slightly more serious issue, I think that it's been made clear by the EU, like so clear, I think, that, you know, there will not be another deal. It's basically that, like that, that is it. Which is why I think it's very frustrating from, as you've kind of mentioned, like from all sides, you know, from and that can be the hard Brexiteers, that could be Jeremy Corbyn, etc. Again, you know, and we'll get in power instead and we'll get a better deal. It's like, no, you will not. Like that is not an option that is on the table. I think you can probably get some cosmetic changes to the withdrawal agreement. Obviously, you can still change you know, the future of the relationship. But that's that. Like the withdrawal agreement will basically not fundamentally change. It's a bit like um, somebody saying, oh, you've stopped serving beer, but. Yeah, winky face, winky face. (laughs) (laughs) Give me two minutes. Theresa now has to get this unpopular bill past Parliament. So has obviously written an open letter to me and you. (laughs) I know, it's quite sweet. So what does she want from us? What does she expect to happen? Are we supposed to write to our MP, say, I mean, might as well, sure, go for it. And if she does think that we can persuade our MPs to vote for the deal, she might want to have a look at the YouGov snap poll. Now, sorry to tread on the toes of your other podcast, Marie, (laughs) but the latest snap poll said that 35% think MPs should vote against it, only 21% who think their MPs should vote for it. But for me, the most interesting number is 53% of people agreed with the statement Brexit is turning into a disaster. So 18% of people think Brexit is a disaster, but still don't think MPs should vote it down. It's almost like this is why we shouldn't have had a referendum in the first place. (laughs) This is sort of the twistic subconscious logic of the great British public. But I do think that just comes back fundamentally to the problems with the referendum campaign, with the Brexit referendum campaign in 2016. Yeah, the the Leave side, sorry, I mean, uh, in the sense that they kept promising stuff that could not be promised, that stuff that would never happen. And I think that genuinely, and that that's what worries me, it's not just the public, but I think quite a lot of the politicians who campaigned for leave only very recently realised basically that, you know, they could not get the Brexit they thought they wanted. And there's still that kind of nearly that sort of, yeah, Tinkerbell, I think, you know, feeling of like, as long as there's people believing in Brexit, then, you know, like the great Brexit will happen. And it's like, that is not the case. That is not true. Maria, I know you're saying words, but all I'm hearing is project fear, project fear. (laughs) (laughs) The only sort of support for the bill was Liz Truss, who described the treaty as, get ready for it, not perfect, but good enough. My Tinder bio. (laughs) (laughs) To be honest, at this stage, I'm not sure Theresa May has to worry about keeping Brexiteers happy. They're never going to be happy. Not with this, not with anything other than a hard Brexit. And when that's a disaster, they'll pretend that it would have been absolutely brilliant if only we'd listened to them. Well, I think the issue is that, and, and that's something I'm, I'm slightly obsessed with, 
the withdrawal agreement, like that is a hard Brexit. Like, I feel like the Overton window in terms of like the rhetoric mm. around Brexit has, you know, has shifted so much where mm. Very clearly, in 2016, what was seen as a soft Brexit was staying in the single market and the customs union, and a hard Brexit was leaving the single market and the customs union. Like, broadly, you know, that's mm-hmm. kind of what we meant. And now we've had several people, and not even just hard Brexiteers, I think, again, you know, journalists, everyone, who have been calling this deal, you know, a very soft Brexit, or like a soft Brexit, as soft as possible. And it's like, I, I'll credit, actually, the hard Brexiteers for that, in that they managed, yeah, to, again, to kind of, like, completely shift the debate and just change what words mean. And I think that's, you know, one of the problems, like, the coverage as well, where actually people, you know, normal people do not know about the fine details of any possible sort of Brexit deal, which is entirely fun. Like, even I didn't really get most of it, you know, and it's meant to be my job. OK, well, you know, we're going to use shorthands for what's actually going on because otherwise it'd be impossible to explain, like, day in, day after day. But actually those meanings are going to, like, arbitrarily change and we're not going to tell you about it. Like, I do think that is a worry. Do you think hard Brexiteers should have been forced to say the country will be absolutely screwed and no um, exports or inputs and we have to worry about how we clean our water again instead of... Brexit. <laughs> a return to the 18th century. But I think that was the thing, actually, that, you know, talking. So I think a bunch of Brexiteers now keep saying, you know, but actually, no deal is not the end of the world. And all like, what was it? Like, my favorite one, I think, is David Davis, who t- said that um, in case of a no deal Brexit, we can just negotiate another deal during the transition period. And it's like, are you a moron? There's no deal. That no deal Brexit is that the clue's kind of in the name. There's not going to be a transition period for no deal. Mm. But anyway, yes, I was talking to someone, like a friend of mine who works on the business side, but on Brexit. And so literally, you know, that is her job. And she's been doing that for a long time now. And we had a very serious chat about that a few days ago. And she was like, actually, if a no deal Brexit genuinely looks very likely, I will be stockpiling food for 46 weeks. Um, <laughs> so yeah and she is one of those yeah so-called experts um, so uh, yeah there you go that is how worried she is as someone who deals with like the practicality of what would happen in case of a no deal Brexit cool wow yeah. well fun times I'm going to leave this er- recording early and start building my uh, underground <laughs> lair yeah. for me I think the 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 saddest news today was uh, reality TV star and sometime president of the US, Donald Trump, has said that the deal would make it really difficult for the UK to strike trade deals with the US, which made me feel sorry for Theresa May. Was that Did that hand-holding mean nothing to him? She helped him <laughs> up so many stairs. So now we're at the end game of Brexit and possibly the United Kingdom. Um, How do you think Brexit has been covered? Do you think it's been covered responsibly in the newspapers? Me personally, I'm kind of annoyed at the media for the way they've covered the whole process. I don't think the fact that an expert is thinking about stockpiling food makes me think maybe they haven't taken it as seriously as they should have. It also feels like it's been in the news constantly, but nothing has happened till last week. People got so bored of it. I think it would have been better if we had just monthly bulletins, you know, space them out a little bit. You know, like people asked the Brexit secretary questions and he could have just like tapped his nose and winked. It would have kept the public on edge. I actually kind of agree with a lot of that. But I think, I mean, the problem is that you know, I, I think obviously like, I do have issues with like the way Brexit has been covered, but I think that it's not 
entirely the media's fault. So one of the things, which again, I think we've talked about in the context about universal credit and stuff is that there's no other show in town in mm-hmm. Westminster that has not been to an extent since, you know, since the 23rd of June 2016. And so I think that's the problem. Like, what do you write? You can't, you know, because I feel like, for example, so since going freelance, I've been trying really hard to not write about Brexit. And it's really hard. Like, you know, I'm basically writing a book at the moment because it was very, very hard for me to find one thing a week or every 10 days to write 2,000 words about because there was nothing else going on. So I think that's part of the issue. And then, I don't know, in, in terms of the general coverage, I think, yeah, like another problem is that a lot of Brexit is, you know, super technical. So it's stuff about, you know, obviously like trade, very detailed stuff you kind of need to be an expert on, I think, to normally report on. So in, in an ideal world, what should have happened is that, you know, we should have seen basically Brexit coming mm-hmm. and trained reporters to actually properly properly know about that because, you know, political reporters can tell you a lot about what happens in Westminster. They think, I think, you know, they can have a decent overview of what each department does, but lobby reporters, etc., and, you know, who are very good at their jobs, most of them, they do not have that kind of, yeah, again, deep understanding. The same way that, for example, you wouldn't take a political journalist here and drop them, I don't even know where, like, you know, let's say in Kenya or whatever, and be like, okay, for the next three months or however long, just write about, you know, all the internal politics and, you know, and everything of, like, Kenya. So I think, you know, that's kind of the issue where there's so much about Brexit, you know, beyond the politics and the personalities of it, which is really hard to wrap your head around. But do you not think, so think of the actual, the Brexit campaign, so much of the coverage was about um, the implications on David Cameron's leadership and what does this mean for Boris Johnson? And it became about sort of the gossip and the Westminster intrigue. And so many of the journalists who covered that are part of that bubble. So I think uh, journalism really let the country down there. If the people covering the story don't understand it, then there should be more stories by people who do understand it rather than the short term who Andrew Marr has yelled at on the Sunday show. Yeah, but then but the thing is that, as you said earlier, the problem is that, you know, fundamentally, not much has happened since Brexit. So I think that's the issue as well. So I think what I would say, I think, about the campaign is that there was an issue around impartiality and kind of neutrality. And especially, you know, I think, yeah, especially on television, where, you know, they felt that, you know, every debate about every tiny bit of policy needed, like, a pro and against side, even when there's stuff that was actually quite factual at the end of the day. So I think, you know, impartiality was clearly an issue. But I think the problem was as well that we had no idea what Brexit meant at that time until, you know, until, yeah, again, quite recently, we did not know what kind of Brexit we would be getting. You know, and also I think is the fact that no one has left the European Union, so you can't actually go, well, you know, this is what happened when X left, etc. So I think... Like you, you can only report on things that happen or have happened, or you know, or you're certain will happen. And we had none of those. But shouldn't the journalists have challenged the politicians more on the fact that we didn't know what Brexit meant and that it was this sort of nebulous term that we're only really two years down the line figuring out what it means? Like, why wasn't that challenged more throughout this rather than it becoming about Conservative leaders' challenge? Because yeah, I've got sympathy both for your point and for like journalists, I think, in this case, because what what can you say? Like you can't just run, you know, an article a day going, this is what we think might happen mm-hmm. if this happens. And also because there were so many variables, because for quite a long time, we also didn't know how the EU would react on like, you know, a number of things. And so I think that was the problem as well. Of like, And again, I think that comes out just the general point about the coverage not being ideal is that, yeah, how do you cover something when you have no idea what might even happen the day after? Uh, well, my favourite commentator on this whole thing was, of course, a fan of the show, our old friend Nick Timothy 
Nick Timothy, of course, was a key member of uh, Theresa May's Praetorian Guard and was fired for being basically too much of a shit. Now, in July the 12th, 2018, he wrote for The Telegraph that there's a lot of reasons to dislike it, but the Chequers plan is the least worst option left on the table. And then on the 15th of November of 2018, so just about I don't know how many months later he wrote, if you believe people voted for Brexit to control immigration and you fear it brings only economic downsides, you might consider the draft agreement the least bad outcome for Britain. If you believe Brexit can restore sovereignty, reform our economy and change the country, you will find it a horror show. So what happened from July to November? I don't honestly like... Oh, he's such a moron. Um, I don't, like, literally, I have so little to say about Nick Timothy besides he's a moron. I, I, I have no idea. Like, I mean, I, I am reading those quotes as well, you know, like they're right in front of me. And I have to say, you know, I, I hadn't noticed them at the time. But, um, but yeah, no, I mean, fuck knows that I do like, I can't remember if I've told you this or not, but um, when he, when Nick Timothy started doing his Telegraph column, he decided to create a newsletter. So, like, you know, did not ask people, like, could not over. So I emphasize how much he did not ask people, because I included friends of mine. And, like, just sent out. He was like, hi, just thought you'd uh, you'd want to read my Telegraph column. You know, just need an email every week. And, uh, and he obviously would no, like, unsubscribe button at the bottom or anything. And, like, yeah, quite a lot of people I knew were like, but why? why? <laughs> Imagine having that level of confidence, not just writing a column, but also creating like a newsletter of like a few dozen people that you've decided deserve to get your writing once a week, like without asking them if they want it or not. Like that is the level of self confidence we have post the twenty seventeen election. <laughs> God, that's what like really crappy open mic gigs do. You get an email going, oh, come see our show. 50 acts for only £2. <laughs> Great. So as our voice on the inside, who do other journalists rate as having a solid take on Brexit? Who do you rate? So journalists, I think Adam Fleming from the BBC is really good. I tend to really have a lot that put a lot of trust into the Institute for Government. So all they're like, they've got quite a lot of people um, who do, you know, special and Brexit stuff. And yeah, and, and they tend to be really good because also they're like entirely impartial. The overwhelming majority of them used to be civil servants. So they're proper wonks. Um, they're not trying to take a side or anything. Um, they're, they're really good. Yeah, I think that, that's basically that. And Anne Menand from UK and Changing Europe tends to be really good. And actually, funny enough, he was in that leaked... Um, I, I don't know if you saw that, but there was that leaked uh, number 10 grid for who they were trying to get, you know, appraisal from like on the deal. And it was really weird. Yeah, so like, and Anne Menand, like Christopher Snowden, I think, from the IEA, and Shinzo Abe, <laughs> the Prime Minister of Japan. And it's like, <laughs> OK... Why not? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free 
or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. about this telling off his state agents to end discrimination? Well, do you know what the DSS is? Well, so I'm not entirely clear, but my understanding it has got something to do with so renting and people on benefits. Very good. And do you know how long it's not existed? Um, I have no idea. <laughs> that is a confusing question to start with, and I do not have an answer to it. The Department of Social Security was shut down in 2001, with its responsibilities taken up by the Department for Work and Pensions. But if you're a renter, you'll definitely be familiar with the phrase, no DSS. Even in 2018, it means no one on benefits. So why does it still appear? We spoke to Monica Burns from the National Housing Federation. What is DSS discrimination? Basically, it is when landlords say that they will not take anybody into their properties. They will not let a property to anybody on benefits. So how widespread is their problem? It is widespread. I mean, we've calculated one in 10 properties have this label, but we know that's the tip of an iceberg. In the research that we did with Shelter, basically, we just looked at anybody that explicitly said, any advert that explicitly said no DSS. We didn't count the adverts that said professionals only need apply or anything like that. So we know that it is the tip of the iceberg, which is very worrying. How much harder does it make things for the people affected by this? Oh, it makes it horrendously hard. I mean, we've got lots of case studies where, you know, people have just basically tried and tried and tried to get a property. And just because of the fact that they have some benefits contributing to their income, they're actually excluded. And a lot of working people get benefits now because of the universal credit. So the way the system works is that your wages would be topped up with benefits and they're actually excluded as well. So, yeah, it does make it really difficult for people. And it also impacts on women and disabled people in a greater degree because more women and more disabled people, people with disabilities, are actually on benefits. So that's one of the issues that we're looking at is actually looking at the fact that it could well be unlawful as it does impact on people with disabilities and women more so than anybody else. So if it's unlawful, why does it keep happening? Because it's not been tested yet. It hasn't been taken to court and Shelter are actually looking at taking some cases to court and then we will actually um, prove that it's unlawful and then basically people could go to prison if they carry on doing it, if it's unlawful. But, I mean, obviously it is discriminatory and it's really, really difficult and it's appalling and we need to actually stop it anyway. Um, But 
obviously, you know, one way of stopping it is actually pleading on people's better sense and saying, you know, all these people do are getting um, benefits. That doesn't mean to say that they can't or won't pay the rent and they won't be good tenants. But in, if that doesn't work, then yes, we can actually hopefully have the law on our side and be able to tackle them in that direction as well. When I was a student, it was so hard. Like, I lived in so many weird places. Like, there was one, <laughs> I think that was a particular highlight where, so I didn't sign a contract. Um, and the guy who I thought was a landlord and so you know would come and collect the rent in cash every month uh, it turns out was not a landlord so unclear where he was up the food chain but so he disappeared with three months of our rent um, and went to Morocco to buy a lot of drugs which he tried to smuggle back into the EU with our rent money and then got caught so really, long story short ended up in a prison in Greece um, and uh, and yeah, and then another guy turned up and was actually the landlord in this okay, so unclear who the person was then, and who would come every month and we'd have to give him like 400 quid in an envelope, um, you know, on one day each month. And then one time I was like, actually, I can't remember what happened, was that like, I can't actually get the cash out, can I just like give you a check, whatever. And so I ended up having to, no, so I do, do a bank transfer to someone who was also like not the name as the guy who came to collect the money, so I was like, hang on, so... The guy initially thought was the landlord was not. The second guy thought was the landlord is apparently not as well. And but anyway, yeah. So I feel like everyone kind of has like those horror stories of just like renting in London, especially when you don't have a lot of money. But uh, but yeah. So I think you know, and the level of like I've been kicked out of places because like yeah, there was one flat actually I lived in in East London. So not long after that one, where the landlord got in touch one day and was like, oh by the way, so he lived in Germany and he was like, yeah by the way, so I'm going to be moving back. Uh, to the flat so the living room is going to become my bedroom um, and now uh, he was this quite weird like yeah German dude in his like 50s and uh, and yeah and also like no reduction in rent or anything so it's like you guys can stay obviously we can be housemates and it's like well no so hang on we're losing a massive living room and we're not getting any less money in rent um, and also we have to live with a weird like 50 something you're so gaining then, a weird we German all moved, flatmate yeah. <laughs> fun plot twist so we all moved out all three of us moved out um, and then later found out that the guy changed his mind, so never moved actually from Germany. So we could have just stayed in the flat. <sighs> so yeah, London renting. I could literally go on for like probably an entire other podcast. <laughs> I swear that is an idea of a for a pod. It's I. I mean, I've lived in London for ten years, and I've moved on average, I'd say, every two years. And I think there's something about as well when you're a foreigner, not having a real. A stable place to live. I think it's even worse because it just everything feels temporary. Even like whenever I'm in my flat, like books or clothes or stuff, it never lasts because it usually I have things up until the next time I move and then I either have to give it away or I lose it. And little things, this sounds so crazy, but I thought, imagine being able to pick your own furniture. Oh my god! I was thinking. I was literally thinking about that recently, and I was like, because I was talking to a friend who's like bought a house because you know apparently some people do that a forever house. And, yeah. and so literally, occasionally on Sundays we'll go like buy furniture, and I was like, and, and it was such a weird like foreign concept to me. I was like, mm. oh, this is so grown up buying furniture. And then I was like, but hang on, like I'm in my late twenties, like buying furniture should not feel grown up to yeah. me. <laughs> but it's just that I've never been able to do it because I've always lived in yeah, like not quite short term, but like not super long term. Yeah places that were furnished. 
So I've been living in London for just over nine years now. And I have lived in nine different flats, if I remember correctly. Like Jenny could be eight, could be ten. But, you know, and it's the thing that I'm currently, I feel like, quite lucky in that I've been in the same flat for two years and three months, which feels mad. Like, it's literally the longest time I've stayed somewhere since moving out of my parents' house. It just makes everything feel very temporary that at any moment your rent could go up, you might have to leave, you might have to move. And what makes me really sad as well is... You never really feel like you have a community because even friends who live near you, you're like, well, for how long? <laughs> I know, and I feel like, so that's why I think, you know, in kind of like the context of what we've been talking about, I think is the thing as well of like, at least like neither of us is on benefits. So we don't have like that extra layer of like, and obviously, yeah, like house hunting in London is a nightmare. So like, I can't even imagine, yeah, having that extra layer where basically most places will be like, no, not you, like get lost. Mm-mm. So like, Grania, so what are the government doing to try and stop this? Well, here's Vicky Foxcroft, MP for Lewisham Deptford, who's been campaigning on this exact issue. At my surgeries, I hear, you know, over half the people who come and see me are seeing me about their housing situation and about their absolute frustration about being able to get on. I had one woman and her daughter was pulling her back to stop her going on her hands and knees to try and beg me to go and do something about it. And I think that this is one of the the most frustrating things actually about being a Labour MP and not being in government is that until we go and get a Labour government, we can't go and do all of those things to go and address those, you know, dire situations for people. Uh, and, you know, trying to, to, you know, speak with those people and give them, you know, some kind of hope when actually, you know, what they're living with is a hopeless situation, you know, every single day. And they are trying so hard to go and get on. And, you know, if I think of some people who are living in temporary accommodation, you know, they've been shipped out of the borough. Um, their children are going to school in the borough. So in, this is in Lewisham. And they're having to spend, you know, hundreds of pounds a month traveling back and forward to go and um, have their children going to school as well as, you know, the hours of travel. And they're just exhausted. You know, they want to be able to live near to where their children are going to school, but also be able to live in decent accommodation rather than all crammed into one room together. One of the things that I went and did is I went and wrote to all of the estate agents in Lewisham and I asked them whether or not they would accept people on benefits. I was really surprised. Uh, Quite a lot of them went and replied to us and almost unanimously the response was we don't or if we do we only do to around five percent of people who are renting and this isn't just something that happens in terms of Lewisham Deptford you know this is far far wider and it's the reason why when I had the meeting with Shelter and they were talking about their campaigns to try and do something to address this and encourage estate agents to go and rent um, to people who are on benefits Um, and then I was just like oh this is really interesting. We've gone and done, you know, all of this work and went and shared the stuff that we'd gone and done on it with them. The truth is, whenever people kind of ask me the question, you know, what can be done? You know, my kind of answer is, well, we need to go and get a Labour government in as soon as possible. But when we are where we are at the moment without a Labour government, then absolutely, you know, the government needs to be putting that pressure on estate agents. You know, councils need to be given the freedom to be able to add in terms of that pressure, but also to be able to work much quicker, to be able to provide the support to people when they're looking for housing. You know, if I think in Lewisham, uh, we go and offer people a deposit scheme 
And the problem is, is that the administration through that takes such a large amount of time that um, by the time you've gone and secured it, actually, they may well have rented to somebody else anyway by that. But I think, you know, kind of adding, you know, making that whole process much more simpler um, and saying to estate agents, you can't discriminate against people just because they're on benefits. And here's Monica from the National Housing Trust again. We've got a campaign going, so the details are on our website, um, the National Housing Federation website, and so they can, sign, um, they can sign up to support our campaign. But also just raise it with letting agencies and actually you know, tell people how appalling it is and what it can result in, i.e. homelessness, as much as possible. Let's get people talking about this. Let's get people aware of it. I think the more people we get are aware of this discriminatory practice and the more it's talked about, hopefully the more unpopular it will become and people will be actually forced into changing it. So there you go. Like I said, just by telling letting agents that you find DSS discrimination unacceptable, you can help stop the practice. Like Monica said, the more people know about it, the less acceptable it becomes. Ask them if they know about shelter making a test case. It'll be fun to see their faces. There are also petitions you can sign and you can find those on our website, changingpolitics.org. And that's it for this week. Have a look at the website for more information on all the campaigns we've been talking about and come and say hello on Twitter at ChangingPolypod and Facebook at ChangingPol. Although we can't guarantee that Mark Zuckerberg won't try to sell you anything. Bye! Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.